don't know, goes to our church. Normally sits over there, so I kind of point in that direction, although he's at home today. Um, is a plumber. Uh, but I believe he totally missed his calling because I think he was supposed to be um, a salesman for uh, for Apple products. Um, I've always been Android. Uh, I know a lot of you are now judging me. All you Apple snobs um, are upset that I guess my texting color is wrong um, or I mess up your group chat somehow. Uh get that out of my way. Um, and maybe it's just that I can't FaceTime. I have to use some other video messaging service. I don't know exactly what the criteria for condemnation is. Um, but when Jesus said that, that God blesses, um, it says God blesses you when people mock you and persecute you and lie about you and say all manner of evil things about you because you're my followers. I think he was talking to Android users um, because we get that a lot. But... Um, I think I just went to Android early and learned how to do absolutely everything you could possibly do on an Android device, and I never really cared to relearn. And so I'm perfectly comfortable with my Android phone and all of my Android accessories until youth camp this summer with Graham. Um, And honestly, it had nothing to do with Graham's phone. I I now have an iPad, and I've learned to do tech support for my mom's iPhone and my mother-in-law's iPhone and even some friends' iPhones. And so I know my way around an iPhone now. Um, And I still have no desire to switch over. Uh, But along with my Android phone, I also have some generic, I have a generic Bluetooth watch um, that connects to my phone and and, uh, it has a few cool features and and I have some basic generic cheap uh, Bluetooth headphones um, that I've used every single day and they've served their purpose uh, perfectly. Um, And never did I had a desire to spend the money for AirPods or an Apple Watch Um, which is great because they wouldn't pair with my Android phone anyway. Except while we were at youth camp, it seemed like every two seconds, Graham's doing something cool on his Apple Watch. um, And he keeps telling me about the weather after looking at his Apple Watch. And he would tell me what the decibel level is in the place where we were worshiping or when we were in the van with the teenagers. And they were all singing at the top of their lungs after looking at his Apple Watch. And he would send messages to people with his Apple Watch. And the more I watched him and asked him what he was doing, the more ridiculous features he showed me that this Apple Watch could do. Um, and then to add insult to injury, one day we're driving the big white van. Graham launches into a presentation about all the cool things his AirPods can do. And I swear he had a slideshow and handouts and take-home materials. It was a full sales pitch. Um, I think I even asked him if he gets like a sales commission if I buy something. But um, to be perfectly honest, talking with Graham about like all the amazing features of his Apple gear um, was the very first time I've ever been tempted to make the switch from Android to Apple. And ultimately, that's what we're talking about this morning uh, and really this entire series. Uh, this is uh, week two of our series we're calling Before You Go. Um, and I'm sure everyone knows that our focus word for 2024 that God gave me months and months ago is the word go. Um, and after taking a full year kind of on our core strength, focusing on the basic fundamental tenets of our faith, the most, and especially in the most basic of Paul's letters outlining the gospel of Jesus Christ, it just feels like the next natural step um, is to go and share that with others, especially considering how desperate 
our world is right now. And hopefully we're going to unpack how to do that over the next year. Uh, but last week we talked about our go bag. If you don't know what a go bag is or if you didn't catch last week's message, a go bag is a backpack or a duffel bag that is preloaded with everything you might need in case you have to take off on a moment's notice. It's usually full of survival gear and some money and first aid equipment and all the things you could possibly want if with no warning you just need to go. Uh, and really, although we didn't, he didn't use the language of the go bag, um, this is ultimately what Paul told Timothy to do. He said this, preach the word of God, be prepared, whether the time is favorable or not, patiently correct, rebuke, and encourage your people with good teaching, for the time is coming when people will no longer listen to sound and wholesome teaching. They'll follow their own desires, and they'll look for teachers who will tell them whatever their itching ears want to hear. They will reject the truth and chase after myths. And boy, do we live in that world um, today. Early in my Christian walk, someone told me to memorize this verse. And because I did, I actually took the time to write a sermon um, on paper by hand. And I carried that thing folded up in my back pocket um, everywhere I went for years, just in case on a whim, somebody asked me to preach a sermon, I guess. But um, I took seriously the call to be prepared in season and out of season. Um, and so I, I carried my sermon with me everywhere. Um, but what Paul tells Timothy is to make sure your go bag is ready. Make sure you're prepared. Uh, but here's the deal. Um, a go bag takes time and effort to prepare. Even though it's ready at the drop of a hat, that doesn't mean that hours and care and concern and thought and preparation and rethought and more preparation doesn't go into the go bag to get it ready. So this series, before we settle into this idea of go, we're checking our go bag to make sure that, that we are ready. Last week, we focused on why. Why do we need to prepare? Why do we need to look in the mirror before we go? Why do we need to make sure that our life is in order before we go? Because as we established last um, year, especially in our study through the book of Romans, our relationship with God is not dependent on our works or our behavior or our performance. Our standing with God is rooted firmly in the grace of God purchased by the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And if this is true, then why does it matter how we live? Well, if you missed last week's message, I highly recommend you go back and listen to that one. But ultimately, your life is the best tool for evangelism in your go bag. Jesus told us to go into all the world and make disciples. And Paul, possibly the best disciple maker in the Bible, often used his own life as the greatest example for what it means to be a follower of Jesus. So what we're doing um, for the next few weeks is we're asking a series of hard questions to see if our lives are ready to go. And this morning we're starting with this question. Are you different? And my, th my thesis is simple. Uh-oh, went too far. The watch on the left, um, you can buy it on Amazon for 30 bucks. That's my watch. I've got that watch. Uh, the watch on the... Uh, on the left, is, uh, wait a minute, the one on the left is my watch. The one on the right is a second generation Apple Watch. I don't know what generation they're on, but you can buy it for about 200 bucks on Amazon. I think this is an older model because I looked at some that were like 400 bucks. But 
When you look at them, they look really, really similar. And again, my earbuds are on the left. AirPods are on the right. Different style, obviously, fit a little bit different, but both look quite fancy and high-tech. Only my Tozo T10s are about 25 bucks, And that pair of iPod, AirPods is about $190 on Amazon. So for me, the cheaper watch and the cheaper earbuds were an easy sell. They look quite similar. I've been getting by fine with my knockoff brands. So why on earth would I spend the extra money? And in steps Graham. Ready in season and out of season to tell me exactly um, what you get for that extra money. And for the first time in my life, I found myself contemplating a conversion to Apple. And your, my, your life and my life are no different. Compared to the lives of any non-Christian in the world, your life looks so similar. You go to work. You have a relationship with a spouse. You, you raise kids. You, you have a house to maintain, a yard to mow, pets to care for. For all intents and purposes, your life is no different on the outside than theirs. And the invitation to place your faith in Jesus comes with a high price tag. Jesus put it this way, if you want to be my disciples, you must by comparison hate everyone else. Your father, your mother, wife, children, brothers, sisters, yes, even your own life. Otherwise, you cannot be my disciple. <laughs> Graham sends me a text. He said, under the bus. That I'm throwing him under the bus. Otherwise, you cannot be my disciple. And if you do not carry your own cross and follow me, you cannot be my disciple. Well, that's pretty expensive. So frankly, if your life looks the same as your neighbor's and his life isn't nearly as expensive as Jesus makes a life of faith sound, then why on earth would anybody buy what we're selling? See, what Graham did was he showed me that, that his, Apple device were, his Apple devices were actually different from my similar-looking off-brand devices. Because if they aren't different, then I'm not buying. And that's the question we're faced with today. Are we different? Are you different? Does your life of faith come with features that make it worth the high price tag. There's a famous letter from one of the Roman emperor's magistrates um, from like the second century. Uh, he wrote it to him um, about some of the earliest Christians when Christianity was exploding um, over the Roman Empire. And the letter wasn't written like in admiration of Christianity at all. Rather, it was a mixture of kind of derision and advice. And the magistrate, after observing um, Christians and eavesdropping and even interviewing some Roman citizens about Christians was kind of sort of making fun of the Jesus followers, but also advising the emperor on things that Rome could do to, to possibly compete with or even defeat Christianity. He was like, these are the things that make them stand out. And I think if we did some of these things, there would be less draw to this new faith. The magistrate said there were three things about Christians that were totally unique. And in his opinion, they were grotesque, uh, but the average citizen seemed attracted to them, and so they were worth considering. First, Christians accepted anyone. 
The Roman gods were very exclusive. Their worshippers were, were called cults. Um, the, the, so it would be like the cult of Zeus or the cult of Neptune or, or whatever. Um, and, uh, and to get in, there were trials, there were tests, there was um, some things you had to, to, to do. Oftentimes it took money to get in. Um, most of the, the, the cults of worship didn't, uh, didn't allow women in unless it was goddess worship, and then they would allow women, but no men. Um, there were no non-Romans invited in. Um, and all the cults were very selective and, and exclusive. And ex- exclusivity was kind of what made them so attractive and desirable. People knew that it was a big deal to get in. So the magistrate was like, you can't believe these people. They let anyone in. Man, woman, slave, free, rich, poor, Roman, Jew, or anything else. It's weird. But people seem to like it. He was like, so the, the first weird thing about him is they'll accept anybody. Who does that? The second thing the magistrate pointed out was that Christians would serve anyone. Because most people only cared for either their immediate family. Some would go so far as uh, to serve like their town or their guild if they were in like a a baker's guild or some kind of guild. Um, And the religious cults kind of cared for the people um, in their cult, but nobody outside the temple. But the crazy Christians don't care who's in need. They serve anyone. The magistrate has uh, a funny line in his letter where he tells Caesar that he could probably end Christianity simply by caring for the Roman widows. He was like, if we would care for our widows, Christians wouldn't have to, and they wouldn't be nearly as attractive. He was like, so I think if you were to take care of some of our widows, Christianity might even die. Because these widows turn to the Christians for care, and then that... Impresses the widow's family, and we've got whole families turning to this new religion simply because the Christians care for widows. And the third thing the magistrate noticed that made Christians different was the way they died. He said, Nobody dies like a Christian. The magistrate noted that Christians face death, whether at the hands of some random Roman soldier beheading them, or a lion in the Colosseum, or being rolled in tar and lit on fire. Christians peacefully face death, usually singing a hymn to their God. The magistrate suggested the emperor stop killing them publicly. He said, kill them privately. Stop doing it publicly because they die really well. And people are attracted to any faith that allows somebody to face the most terrible thing you could imagine that peacefully. He said, you have to stop killing them publicly. It's only making more people turn to this religion. Basically what this magistrate was saying was that these people are different. They're different than everybody else, and everyone recognizes it. There's actually something fundamentally different about them, and you simply can't treat them like everybody else. And more importantly, people recognize the difference and are attracted by those differences. They were willing to buy even at a higher price because the differences were worth the expense. Now, several of the things that I believe um, are supposed to set us apart as Christians Christians are going to make up the main points of of each of the weeks of these series. But the one thing that I would like to dive deeper into this week is the idea of sin, which of course is scary. We hate it when the church talks about sin. And maybe a more accurate way of saying it is the process of sanctification, 
If you aren't used to big churchy words like that, I'll explain what that means in a bit. But in case you didn't know, we aren't supposed to sin. Big shocker. Sin is to act in a manner or even to think in a manner that is contrary to the will of God as outlined by Scripture. And we're not supposed to do that. We're just not. But there's a problem. We all do. (laughs) We all sin. Every single one of us. Paul said it this way in Romans 3.23, For everyone has sinned. We all fall short of God's glorious standard. Now, we know that this is why Jesus came to earth and lived a life we couldn't live, died the death we should have died, and rose from death to give us life and ultimately save sinners like us. And if that were the end of the story, we'd be fine. If we were a bunch of sinners who used to sin, and then Jesus came and saved us from those sins, and now we don't sin anymore at all, that would be a pretty easy story. It'd be an easy sell. But even after we put our faith in Jesus, we still sin. In fact, in that same book of Romans, a few chapters later, Paul said this about his own Christian life. He said, I don't really understand myself. For I want to do what's right, but I don't do it. Instead, I do what I hate. And if I know that I'm doing, that what I'm doing is wrong, this shows that I agree that the law is good. There's a lot of fun philosophy there we don't have time to get into. So I'm not the one doing the wrong. It's the sin living in me that does it. And I know that nothing good lives in me that is in my sinful nature. I want to do what is right, but I can't. I want to do what is good, but I don't. I don't want to do what is wrong, but I do it anyway. Paul is acutely aware that even after being saved, we still sin. But hidden in this passage is the process of sanctification which we're going to unpack a little bit. And please remember, before we dive in here, uh, that this passage, Paul is talking about our relationship with God through Jesus. Um, And if you want to study it in its full context, please go back and listen um, on the YouTube channel of the Roman series from last summer. But for our purposes this morning, we're building on last week's caveat that we don't clean up our lives to earn favor from God. We don't clean up our lives um, so that we can, we can be worthy of his love in some way. We clean up our lives because it makes us more effective at sharing our faith with others. Again, if you missed last week, go back and listen. But in this passage where Paul is battling his sin and seems to be losing, there's a beautiful process we call sanctification. And honestly, uh, it's important that we not only embrace this process, but that we also learn to authentically share this process with those with whom we share the gospel, which we'll explain. So let's break it down a little bit. First, Paul battles his own sin. And I love that he doesn't tell us what sin he's battling. I think if he said, I I don't want to lose my temper, but I keep losing it. Those of us who don't struggle with that uh, sin would basically go, oh, then I'm good. And we'd never dig deeper. But Paul leaves the specifics for us to fill in from our own lives. And it doesn't matter if it's the language you use or sex or laziness or overeating or not speaking what God has given you to speak or pornography or worshiping politics or fear or lust or greed or stinginess or just apathy. Whatever your sin is, that's what you're supposed to plug into this passage. 
And the second reality that exists in this passage is that Paul really doesn't want to sin. This is huge and it's so subtle. But it makes such a huge difference, especially as we go into all the world to make disciples. Because we have this tendency to view sin as the thing that people really, really, really want to do. And it's our job to talk them out of doing what they really, really, really want to do. In fact, we are just trying to talk them out of uh, doing what they really, 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 really want to do. First, we have to convince them that that thing they really, really, really want to do is wrong. And that's a hard sell. And if you have, miscon- mis- if you have kids, this misconception is, is easy to come by because when our kids are little, this is exactly the way it works. Our kids want a cookie, and that's all they want. And they've never wanted anything else. And it's the only thing they'll ever want is this one cookie. And their whole world is this cookie. And they might die if they don't get it. Only you know that they've already had two cookies. And a third cookie is really bad for them. And so you have the the hard sell of trying to explain to them that they do not need another cookie. And then wrestle them and soothe their tears and and do all the things because you won't give them another cookie. But that's not the picture of sin that Paul is painting here. And this is so important. Paul is telling us of a sin that he doesn't want to commit. And he's aware that it's a sin. And he doesn't want to do it. The drama isn't that he needs to be told it's a sin. The drama isn't that he needs to be convinced that he shouldn't commit this sin. The drama is that Paul is trapped. He's a slave and he wants to be free. And if we could grasp that, that this, it might change much about the way we talk about sin. Listen to the way Paul talks about sin with the Corinthians. He says, when I wrote you before, I told you not to associate with people who indulge in sexual sin. But I wasn't talking about unbelievers who indulge in sexual sin or are greedy or cheat people or worship idols. You'd have to leave this world to avoid people like that. I meant that you're not to associate with anyone who claims to be a believer, yet indulges in sexual sin or is greedy or worships idols or is abusive or a drunkard or cheats people. Don't even eat with such people. It isn't my responsibility to judge outsiders, but it certainly is your responsibility to judge those inside the church who are sinning. God will judge those who are outside. Now, I don't have time to actually unpack this passage because there's a lot of context that's really important to its actual... uh, uh, hermeneutics, but um, and I really do want to uh, shorten my messages. But the one thing I do want you to notice is that Paul talks about sinners that are outside the church. He doesn't talk about judging them. Notice how he doesn't talk about Hollywood. He doesn't talk about political parties, the, the other political party. He doesn't talk about the people pushing an agenda that drive you crazy or your coworker who does drugs or your brother who won't settle down or that generation that you don't understand. Listen to how he talks about them. He says, I wasn't talking about unbelievers who indulge in all these things. You'd have to leave this world to get away from people like that. What's Paul mean you have to leave this world to get away from people like that? Listen to what Jesus said. He said, and he said go into all the world. And preach the good news to everyone. Jesus told, told us to go into all the world. And Paul says, if you were trying to avoid sinners, you'd have to leave the world to do that. In other words, you, you can't fulfill your mission if you aren't okay being around sinners. 
Jesus sent us into the world, and that's where sinners live. So Paul's like, you wouldn't be able to fulfill your mission if you were upset about sinners sinning. Your mission is sinners. Paul's like, of course I didn't mean to avoid those people. Those are the very people you're called to share the gospel with. So to go all the way back to Paul's battle with sin in Romans 7, there's no convincing, there's no debating about what constitutes sin. There's no, there's no preaching a, con, a convicting message. Paul knows he's a sinner and he wants to stop sinning. Which is the third reality that's present in Romans 7. And that's that Paul is battling. He's fighting. He's working to get better. He's in the slow process we call sanctification. To sanctify is to separate something for holy use or different use or special use. So sanctification is the process of doing that. And Paul is firmly in that process. And this is something we need to embrace and share. Because here's, here's a little secret. Don't tell anyone I told you this. Um, but most people are miserable. And more specifically, they're miserable in their sins. And this makes them kind of funny. Not like ha-ha funny, but like weird funny. We have a dog right now named, named Lucy, and, and she's a pain in the butt. Not because she's a bad dog. She's actually super gentle and loves kids and really trainable in most things. But she loves the highway, which at our house is like a deal breaker because we live right on a busy highway. And, and so she's spending a lot of time on a lead rope right now, which is awful. And right now she's in my house, which is even more awful because it's cold. I don't normally let dogs in my house. But we've had her in this harness because she's got a skinny head. She can slip out of most collars. And her harness had rubbed some raw spots on what I guess would be a dog's armpit. And they were in pretty bad shape. So we've been bringing her in and putting some salve on those, on the sores. And, and she fights and struggles and even growls a little um, when we first start putting the medicine on her wounds. She, she's never tried to bite us or anything, but she sounds very defensive, even though we're trying to help her. And heal her. And I don't know if you know this, but sinners are the same way. We bark and we wiggle and we growl and we even bite. And if you didn't know better, you'd think that we like our sin. That we would do anything to defend it. But secretly, we're wounded. And we're afraid of the medicine. And that doesn't mean we can't, you know, get bit trying to help someone with their brokenness, but we have to realize and we have to change our mindset. We have to understand that this is not our job to stop the world from sinning. It's our job to give the cure to those who want to be healed. Now, Paul made it clear that he's not interested in getting sinners to stop sinning. His only concern is with people in the church. Peter basically says the same thing. He says, for the time of judgment, uh, the time has come for judgment, and it must begin in God's household. And if judgment begins with us, how terrible a fate awaits those who never obey God's good news. And also, if the righteous are barely saved, what will happen to godless sinners? We have to get through our heads that it's not our job to tell the world how to live. It's just not. What is our job is right here in this room. And right here through this screen, scattered all over, connected by YouTube, judgment starts right here in God's house. 
So what does that mean practically? How do we, how do we bring all this together and make sense out of it? Let me see if I can do it with some bullet points. First, surrender their sanctification. If we're going to go, we have to give up this idea that we are supposed to convince people that what they are doing is sin and that they should stop it. That is not our job. In fact, we aren't going to, to, to come... They aren't going to come to Jesus... Uh, if they aren't going to come to Jesus as they are, broken by sin then it would be illogical for them to stop sinning. They should totally enjoy sin while they can. If they're not going to come to Jesus and put their faith in Jesus, then sin is a way better choice. But the great apostle Paul didn't even pretend that he had any voice whatsoever to speak to the world about sin. He had to give up that voice as well. He said, I don't pretend like I have anything to say to them. So the second thing, embrace your sanctification. First, surrender their sanctification. That's not your job. Give up on that. Surrender the idea that you're supposed to sanctify the world. But embrace your sanctification. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, your life should be convicting. You should feel guilty on a fairly regular basis. That is not a bad thing. Because remember, because of what Jesus accomplished on your behalf, you are at peace with God. No striving for his approval. You are forgiven and loved, and you are the very righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. So guilt is not condemnation. Conviction is not damnation. When the Holy Spirit pricks your conscience, that's a good thing. When the people gathered around Peter to hear the very first Christian sermon ever preached, the Bible says this, Peter's words pierced their hearts. And they said to him and to the other apostles, Brother, what should we do? Peter tells them how to get saved, but it starts, their very salvation starts with a pain of having their hearts pierced. When the apostle Paul tells the story of his conversion, he says this, And when we had fallen to the ground, I heard a voice speaking to me and saying in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It's hard for you to kick against the goads. Goads were these sharp sticks they would put behind an ox's rear legs as the ox was pulling a plow or or a a wagon. And the first couple of times the, the ox would try to kick the plow or kick the wagon, he'd hit those goads and they would poke him. They'd quickly learn to stop kicking. So some stubborn ox would kick several times and hurt themselves. Paul was apparently one of those, but Paul's salvation and his calling was wrapped up in guilt and pain. Guilt is not evil. Guilt is usually the Holy Spirit's way of freeing us from yet another thing that we want to stop but don't have the power to stop. So don't run from sanctification. If someone says something that convicts you or pierces your heart or stabs your kicking legs, embrace that conviction and thank God for caring enough to help you with the sins that enslave you. And third, model real sanctification. Bottom line is this. When you are in the world like you should be, you should be different. Your approach to sin should be different. I wish I could say that you shouldn't sin. Don't sin. In fact, I will say that. You shouldn't sin. But you will. And I believe when we model real sanctification, we let people know that we are in process 
And God is working on us in areas and we, are, we still sin, but we are so grateful that we aren't who we used to be and that he's working on us and that, that God has done so much work and that we're excited that he's going to continue to work in us. I honestly believe that when we embrace humility and we understand that judgment starts with us, not with the crazies out there who are messing our country all up or, or annoying the heck out of us, when we model the process of conviction and sanctification, I believe we will be so much more effective at sharing the gospel than we are when we draw a line in the sand and we say everybody on that side is a sinner. So how do we respond to this? I have so much more I'd love to say, but I'm going to stick to my resolution. But here's the deal. How we live matters. It does. It matters to those who are miserable and want to be set free. And they're looking at your life and wondering, is there anything different in this product that you have? Or is it just a more expensive version of what I already have? They want, to, they, they want to know that following and serving Jesus really is different. And if your life is a sinful mess just like theirs, then why would they buy what we're selling? And even more, if you pretend like you don't sin and you pick on their sins either directly or indirectly and then they catch you sinning, well, that cell does even more damage. But when you surrender to the, to the sanctification, to the, to the Holy Spirit, the way it should be, and you embrace your own sanctification and, and learn to appreciate conviction and welcome guilt that leads to life and admit to the, to the hurting people in your life that, that you're a work in progress and you share how far you've come and and, and how far you still have to go and how excited you are that God is still working on you, that, he, that you know He's going to finish the work He's begun. I believe that's when our lives start to become a tool for leading people to Jesus. And like Paul, we can begin to say, imitate me as I imitate Christ. You want to know what it looks like when a, when a Jesus follower sins and messes up? Follow me, because you're going to see me sin and mess up. You're going to see me repent and respond to that, because that's what we do when we mess up. We turn back to God and we ask for his forgiveness and, and we repent. If you want to see what that looks like, follow me. So here's how I'd love to respond to this message. Wrestle with the question, when was the last time you felt truly convicted? You felt real conviction. How did you respond? Were you defensive? Were you defeated? If you were either defensive or defeated, go back and do it over again. Replay whatever made you feel guilty and thank God for that guilt. Embrace it as a tool of the Holy Spirit and thank Him for caring enough to pierce your heart. Because if you were either defensive or defeated, you aren't embracing the beautiful process of sanctification. Sanctification happens when we welcome the change that the Holy Spirit is bringing into our lives. And we're excited that the presence of the Holy Spirit is in our lives to the point that we know when we've messed up. Because how sad would it be if the Holy Spirit just left you to keep on sinning and never let you know when it's wrong? Ugh. No, if you've been, if, if, if you've been convicted... 
And, and both responses are wrong. If you're defensive and you're like, ah, that's not my fault. I didn't sin. I didn't do that. If you're defensive towards conviction, then you're resisting the Holy Spirit. And if you're defeated because you feel convicted, if, if conviction makes you just, I'm terrible and I'm awful and, and makes you feel defeated and you're not embracing the, the, the salvation that's offered in Christ Jesus, and that's just as wrong. No, if you've been convicted lately, thank God for it and rejoice. And if you can't remember the last time you felt conviction, then run. Don't walk. Run to God and ask Him to search your heart. Dive into the Scripture and ask God to transform you one conviction at a time by His Word. If you haven't gotten really good at everything on your radar, if, 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 if everything that you're thinking about you're good at and there's no areas for growth, then you need to beg the Holy Spirit for a new radar. We should not stop growing and maturing and healing and becoming more and more like Jesus until we reach glory. And growth only happens through pain. So pray for guilt. I know that sounds weird. And not just a vague sense of woe is me, I'm awful. Not that guilt. Pray for conviction. The kind of guilt that says I can do better and I trust that, that God's going to help me do better. I will do better. So if you've been experiencing conviction, don't be defensive, don't be defeated. Embrace it and thank God for it. And if you aren't, that's not okay. Run to God and ask Him to pierce your heart so you can grow more like Him. Let's go to the table.